All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. Welcome back to the Mars Magazine Podcast. This is Adario Strange along with Vic Song. And we have just come off of a very interesting week. Well, before we get into that, um, how's your week been, Vic Song? It's been very busy. Really? Just a lot of uh just a lot of things to catch up on and running here and there. New York never sleeps. So, you know. Yeah, so just a reminder for listeners, we're both based in New York, New York City. Um, but I am thinking of, like, in the future, maybe, like, uh, taking this on the road, at least on my side, and maybe um, transmitting from California. And then later this year, I plan to make a visit back to Japan. So maybe <gasps> do, like, a little broadcast from Japan. Are, are, when You're going back? Because I'm going back later this year, too. When, when are you going back? Um, I'm not entirely sure yet. I was thinking about sometime early fall. Yeah. See, that's, <laughs> see, obviously we both know when the best deals are, are around. Uh, yeah. That's, mind, that's the same time I'm thinking. Mind meld. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that might happen, but, um, yeah, my week's been pretty busy as well, but, um, we'll get into that a little bit later and I'll kind of talk about what I did, uh, earlier this week, but first let's get into a couple of news bits. The big news this week is from SpaceX and uh, SpaceX founder and CEO Elon Musk uh, announced plans that he wanted to begin his actual execution of getting a rocket, a capsule to Mars. Uh, he wanted to begin that by 2018, hmm. which is incredible. It, this is years ahead of what anyone had anticipated uh, in I... terms of getting, getting us to Mars. I'm shocked. I, for some reason, every article I seem to read about going to Mars was saying something like 2020s, 2030s, like just for even getting started. So the 2018 date was surprising to me. Was it surprising to you, Adario? Yeah. I mean, so it's, I, I, I don't have the dates memorized, but I feel like I remember NASA saying something about a probe in the 2020s, like the mm -hmm. 2020s, something like that. Um, but I think that the thing to note about Elon Musk's uh, announcement is that this isn't simply a probe and this isn't just, um, you know, sending a hunk of metal to Mars and that's it, you know, for maybe study, kind of like Curio the Curiosity rover. This is actually um, his plan to kind of begin investigating colonizing Mars, which I think still sounds pretty outlandish to most people. But I mm -hmm. mean, look. The guy is, he's executing on his vision. I mean, he's executed on uh, Tesla, the electric car. For those who don't know, he's also the CEO and founder of Tesla, uh, the electric car company. Uh, he is executing on these reusable rockets, which he just recently uh, showed off as being able to return to a very specific point in the middle of the ocean and uh, land and essentially begin uh, the process of giving us reusable rockets. So he's executing on his vision. So, yes, A, I was surprised, but B, I think the, the larger kind of surprise or uh, fascinating part about this is that this is all leading up to him, uh, you know, trying to get humans uh, to Mars, at least based on the things he said in recent, you know, discussions. Well, um, I think the capsule that they're talking about is the Dragon capsule, right? Uh, so, you're talking about the, for, for Mars, right? Yes, for Mars. Um, I, th I think they're calling it Red Dragon because they're mm -hmm. because you know Red Planet, and then also they collaborated with NASA. That's something I forgot to mention. They're collaborating with NASA, and NASA's helping them with uh, data of some sort. Right. I think I read somewhere online that the Dragon, oh, sorry, Red Dragon capsule is you know it would be something that a human could ride in, although probably quite uncomfortably. Mm -hmm. So it, it's it's an interesting, like, what do you think he's going to do when he sends them there? Is this a cargo sending mission or? Well, I think, well, I've listened to, I should, I should just full disclosure. I, I pretty much obsess over uh, what Elon Musk says almost as much as I did uh, with uh, Steve Jobs when he was alive. I'm mm -hmm. really fascinated by visionaries and 
you know, inventors and, and company founders who try to push us, push us to the edge. And, you know, part of what he's uh, talking about is also what um, Stephen Hawking talks about a lot, which is becoming a multi-planet species. Um, mm-hmm. If, you know, in the event that something happens here on Earth, you know, having another body, another planetary body where, you know, humanity can at least have, you know, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny minuscule chance of possibly carrying on, you know, if all goes to hell here on Earth. So, yes, I, even if we are able to somehow set up a colony on Mars, you know, I don't know that anytime soon that would actually save humanity if, if everything goes to hell on Earth. But, you know, this is a good first step to just exploring the possibilities. This is, again, I mean, human colonization on other planets, uh, beginning with Mars, your take is, viability-wise? I think he's definitely going to launch the capsule, but I don't think it'll be... I think it'll be another 10, 20 years before we even try sending someone. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? 10 years, yeah. I mean, well, with Elon, if we were talking NASA, I'd say, you know, the 2020s, the 2030s sounds about right. Um, with Elon, he seems to be very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, well, look, 2018 is almost a 2020. So, yes, I mean, it's not... You know, based on his aggressiveness with his other ventures and his other exploits, you know, 2025, 2022, something like that. That's not, you know, I don't think that's outlandish in terms of him putting, you know, trying to put a person on Mars. But, um, you know, it's just, uh, again, I think the question is, you know, is there a point? Like when you go to the novel, um, the what's what's the novel that just got made into the movie? The Martian. Right, The Martian. When you go when you, you know, talk about a book like that and a film like that and you kind of look at the harsh environment and what, you know, he mm-hmm. supposedly was able to do on its surface, it just really doesn't seem viable at this point to try to put humans on Mars with any significant presence. But, you know, this is what is driving Musk's vision. This is what is inspiring him. So, I'm willing to pay attention. I'm willing to, you know, Go along for the ride, not literally, but go along for the, uh, you know, for the conceptual ride and see how it plays out. But I think just him announcing this, him having the uh, the guts to announce this and not be worried about, you know, you know, looked at as insane is uh, admirable. And it's exciting. My mind tends to go to the what if horror scenarios. So part of me is a little apprehensive that it does seem quite so aggressive. I think this is something that I personally would want to take as much time on to get it right because it's so expensive. But uh, that being said, I do think you need visionaries like Elon Musk pushing us to to get there at some point. Because I think Life on Mars, that kind of uh, project, if you just were to leave it to the public sector, this would we wouldn't be there until like 2080. I don't know. Well, yeah, that that's the, I think that's the privatization of space is kind of the other exciting part because NASA and even other space agencies around the world, the, the whole idea of getting humans out into space, that's kind of fallen off a bit. And there's been more attention on the International Space Station and beyond mm-hmm. that, you know, primarily focusing on probes, you know, that are operated remotely. Um, so this is exciting, you know, on a human level, you know, you know, just getting us to making us, you know, turning us into a multi-planet species, but it is a pretty lofty aspiration. And, um, you know, who knows if any of us will even be alive to see a real first human colony on Mars, but, you know, Musk, that's, you know, he's going to try to make that happen, presumably while he's still around. And, Another anniversary. Last week, we had a different kind of anniversary. This week, we have the 30th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear accident in Russia. Uh, That came to pass on April 26, 1986. This week, there's been a good deal of discussion around the issue of using nuclear energy, you know, the the dangers inherent therein. And one one of the interesting projects that we stumbled across was this uh, virtual reality doc- documentary called uh, Chernobyl, 
I'm a little thrown off by their spelling. They don't spell yeah. it. Yeah, they don't. I, sp- I noticed that too. And then I was thinking because they are actually Russian, right. maybe that's actually closer to how they say it. Exactly. And we've right. just been spelling it wrong. That, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I'm just going to keep saying it the way everyone knows. So I'm going to say Chernobyl 360. And it basically puts the viewer in a first person, uh, gives the, the viewer a first person seat from a drone's perspective. And it takes you around this really spooky well you know the it was so creepy it was let me just say that was really creepy i mean it was super cool watching the drone take the the little camera thing and fly around that part was cool i was like oh man awesome but then when i was actually looking at the like the scenery i don't know man that's creepy and so they have a uh kickstarter project set up to i guess help fund the completion and production and distribution of the vr experience it's kind of weird because on one end i know there are a lot of people out there who want to know or who kind of think it's important to look back at chernobyl and look at just as a, almost a reminder, a, a monument to the dangers uh, associated with nuclear energy. And, and it's also, uh, I guess, valuable in that right now, uh, you know, in real time, the, the reminder of the dangers of nuclear energy that we have in our face are mainly Fukushima and the, mm-hmm. the deserted areas around uh, Fukushima, Japan, um, the accident that occurred in 2011, um, after the earthquake and then tsunami. And then I always, <laughs> you know, a lot of people died and a lot of people got hurt. So I hate to joke about this, but you know, we were there. So I feel like I have some right to joke about it. I mean, I, I almost feel like, you know, I, during that day, I just remember thinking, okay, when's Godzilla coming? Cause we got the tsunami, we got the earthquake, we got the tsunami. Uh, nuclear you know, thing. Perfect is perfect conditions for Godzilla. That's literally the setup for almost every Godzilla movie, is it not? Yeah. So, I mean, so anyway, so just some people look at, I think, I think some people look at Japan and Fukushima and maybe kind of because it's so far away and because it involves a culture that is so foreign to them, you know, they're able to easily kind of put it in the back of their mind. And I mm-hmm. think the value of the, the 30th anniversary uh, VR experience of Chernobyl is that it kind of reminds us of, some people feel this is like some of the safest, cleanest energy available, and some people think it's quite the opposite. Either way, it's it's a great reminder of kind of the dangers around yeah. it. It's also kind of yeah. a great, I guess, attempt to show us something through virtual reality that we can't otherwise experience in person. You know, it's it's pretty much right. off limits. Limits. You know, um, when you mentioned Fukushima, what I thought of was very recently there was they released some photos from that area that like a camera or like a little robot and it showed like mutated plants and daisies. I think that's part of what people want to see in in something like Chernobyl VR, uh, Chernobyl 360s. Um, I think they want to, you know, see for themselves if they can see something strange like that and what that might feel like. So that happened this week. I got to be honest, it may it was a, a bit of a downer, but there was something a little bit more hopeful that happened as well. Alien Day. Alien Day is Basically, an invented holiday that 20th Century Fox came up with. Well, not holiday, an invented uh, commemorative day based on the film franchise Alien, starring Sigourney Weaver. So the, the interesting part is that Alien Day actually falls on the exact 30th anniversary of Chernobyl. Conspiracy! No, well, it's, <laughs> um, it's the universe. No, so actually what it is is um, the ship that lands on the planet in the first film, the first alien film, uh, I believe it's called LV-426. Do I have that right? I did think you, so. Did you, yeah, so I think it's LV-420. I know the number's right, 426. So they decided to take that number and essentially make it a commemorative date. So what the studio did was they uh, formed a partnership with Draft House. Uh, what is it? What's the name of the... Alamo Draft House? Alamo Draft House House Theater, which I guess the main distinction with their chain is that they have like these super comfortable seats. You can drink beer in the theater. No talking Um, or they'll kick you out. Right. They're super strict about talking and and texting. So it's supposed to be like the ultimate best case scenario movie watching environment. So anyway. So 20th Century Fox linked up with that uh, movie theater chain, as well as a T-shirt seller, uh, Mondo. 
mm-hmm. for a lot of uh, limited editions, special edition alien t-shirts, patches from the uh, Nostromo. Actually, I'm sorry. Did I let me just rewind? I think I said LV426 was the name of the cra- spacecraft. If I said that, I was that's actually incorrect. That's the name of the uh, moon that the crew landed on where they oh. found the alien. So if I said that incorrectly earlier, sorry about that. I meant the actual uh, moon planetoid, uh, the spatial body that they landed on was uh, LV-426. So, and actually I remember um, when 426 came just a couple of days ago, I there was a poster I wanted. I'm getting, so the point that I'm trying to make is this was a very popular day. Although invented and it's kind of, I guess, you could some some might call it contrived. The day was in fact incredibly popular with fans and regular people alike. The on Mondo, there was a poster that I wanted of uh it's basically like an X-ray of mm-hmm. a human body, uh showing just like the skeletal form and kind of like the the vague it looks very realistic, the vague kind of like you know, like basically what you would see in a regular human uh medical uh X ray, but it okay. also has like a face hugger. So it's like someone Ooh. had an X-ray taken with a Ooh. face hugger, so uh, on you know wrapped around their face, and so it's um, yeah. it really really looked cool, and so I waited for the exact time that the posters were set to go on sale, like an Apple iPhone that just got released. Like I click on the website and it's sold out immediately. Like oh just God. like like uh, I think they had like two hundred and fifty, three hundred and fifty available. That happened. Um, they had the uh, the studio held a Twitter based uh, trivia contest, kind of you know testing your knowledge of the sci science fiction franchise. And then they also, you know, as I mentioned, they had the film was screened a double feature of Alien, the first film, and Aliens, the second film, uh, double feature screened all around the country. And it, it was, uh, I have to say, this is um, it, it was a success from from everything mm-hmm. I can see. Uh, people loved it. Did you even know about this? I didn't until you told me. I and you know, I love Alien and Aliens, so I was I felt I felt like I had to hand in my nerd card a little bit. Like no, I I found out by complete accident. I don't even remember how I found out, have, but do you know if they've been doing this long? Is it a new thing? No, no, thing? this is the first one. No, so oh, okay, you, okay. No, your nerd card is Ooh, still my uh, nerd intact. card is okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was the first one. I think the the origin of the idea came from a fan who suggested it last year. He suggested it online. Oh, that's so cool that they ran with it. Yeah, yeah. the studio decided to run with it. I don't know if they're going to do this every year now, because I think that's a bit much. I don't know if, like, every year there's going to be, you know, this kind of excitement. I think maybe if they did it every five or ten years or something like that, but every year might be a bit much. I don't know if I'm willing to celebrate the Alien franchise on a yearly basis like it's Christmas or something. Or or maybe they could do it whenever they come out with the prequels and kind of tie it in that way. Right. The next um the next sequel, which I'm not even sure if it's if it is a prequel, but the next one is coming, I believe uh, 2017. Yeah, so maybe maybe we wait Maybe they were just, like, testing to see if it's good this year. And then next year, when the sequel comes out, they can go all crazy-like. Right. So this this is a genius studio move. And for the fans, the fans appear to be overjoyed with this. And on my side, Mm -hmm. I actually managed to attend the screening here in New York, which was the only screening on Alien Day. I just Okay, you know what? Let me just pause for a second and say... I love the name of this day. Like, <laughs> day. like that good job, 20th Century Fox or, or whoever came up with this name. Alien Day is an awesome name for a holiday. I love that. It, um, you know, it does sound like it's a holiday. It doesn't it doesn't sound like one of those things where it's like, hey, celebrate the movie day or something like that. It sounds like it could be a legit holiday. Yeah. Alien Day. Love it. Nice and simple. Uh, you know what it's about. But anyway, so I got to attend a screening of the second installment in the series, Aliens, at Town Hall in Midtown Manhattan. And this was the only screening of the film on Alien Day that was hosted, uh, introduced and hosted by uh, Sigourney Weaver, who is the protagonist, the uh, hero. Ellen Ripley. Ellen Ripley, right. She was awesome. She was awesome. She introduced the film and then afterwards she took questions I think, though, before I even talk about that, what was really interesting was the crowd. 
First of all, it was a sold out event. Let me be clear. Like, <laughs> if anyone has any doubts about how popular the Alien franchise is, those were put to rest on Alien Day, uh, April uh, 26, because this theater, it was, it was, it's a pretty big theater. It was packed. It was jam packed. And let me, one other thing, it wasn't. Uh, like a Comic-Con crowd where there were okay. people in the audience with, you know, alien heads on or alien, you know, gloves on. This was an exceedingly normal looking crowd. That's okay? interesting because I'm really glad you said that because I was picturing the Comic-Con, like the Comic-Con crowd where people were super cosplaying or, you know, you had Ripley's in the audience or something like that. So that's right. really interesting. Yeah, I scanned the audience very carefully looking for this kind of thing. And I might have, I caught like a few people here and there with like a T-shirt, you know, just like some sort of alien franchise T-shirt. But in general, it was just like an incredibly normal looking crowd, uh, all ages, all races, all genders. Um, Interestingly, I I would, I think, you know, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this. There, There seems to be a special place in the heart of uh, science, uh, female science fiction fans. For oh, this yeah. Because when I, when I talked to a few there, like they just, uh, there seemed to be this pride beaming. You know, uh, oh, okay. Can queen. I just say Ellen Ripley is one of my like sci-fi female protagonists. Like she has a special place in my heart because not only is she badass throughout the entire movie, she, I don't know, man, she's just, she never for a second feels like she can't, like, you never for a second feel as a viewer that she can't handle what's coming at her. Like, and, you know, there's so many movies where maybe the female is, um, you know, she's she's smart, but she kind of loses her mind three quarters of the way through the movie. That never really happens to Ripley in the sense that you lose confidence in her. You just She just takes you with her the entire way. And lucky star, lucky star. Well, you know the what does Lucky Star mean? I'm sorry, I'm I'm not uh, not here. What what is that? It's at the end of the first movie uh, when she's you know and she thinks she's escaped and she's in the undies and you she just sees the alien mm-hmm. has escaped with her and she's like oh crap it's just me me and it me and it and she starts singing to herself Lucky Star Lucky Star but she oh, does wow, it that's right I remember okay yeah that does sound familiar wow good memory to your point what's interesting is the the first and last time the we see kind of a cinematic representation of their being or or ripley being kind of in a traditionally you know like traditional cinema generally doesn't put the woman in the strong role i mean maybe unless it's a horror film mm-hmm. which is kind of like a horror movie trope but otherwise you know you don't the, the women don't really seem to get kind of that uh, benefit of the doubt, you know, as being capable and able to handle something just as well, if not better than a man. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it seems like the, the last time we see that treatment is in the first film where most of the crew are men and mm-hmm. there are a couple of women, but basically men kind of run that ship in terms of, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And every time, you know, sp- I, Anyone listening to this, I hope you've seen Alien. So spoiler for spoilers for Alien, which came out 800 years ago. Yeah, so, um, you know it's not really a spoiler because it came out 800 years ago. Right. Um, Get your life together. Right. So <laughs> I mean, what you notice in the first film is that every time Ripley raises an objection or some concern, mm-hmm. she's very quickly, you know, dismissed and just pushed off to the side. And then the other, the only other woman I I could be missed. I'm I'm pretty sure there were only two, if I'm wrong, correct me, but I think there are only two women. And the only other woman on the ship is this kind of basket case. She's just like (laughs) this, this, you know, the perfect panic, uh, you know, character, you know, in any film, I feel like that's the last time, you know, we saw her kind of put in that traditional cinematic role of a woman who is not really, listened to, paid attention Mm -hmm. to, and kind of sloughed off. And then in in the subsequent films, that may happen here and there. But as the audience, we're sitting there going, oh, you better listen to Ripley. (laughs) Ripley knows what she's talking about. You know, you you don't listen at your own peril. Ripley is not having any of your nonsense. And, you know, you bring up a really good point about that. You know, she's not listened to in the first movie. And, you know... It's on them. Everything that happens, you should have listened to her. All right. So my question to you, 
Mm-hmm. My question to you is, have you seen every single Alien film? Because I have. I'm an Alien nut. Like, how? Okay, which ones so have you not seen? I, I'll tell you which ones I have seen because I remember that better. Uh, I've seen Alien and Aliens and whatever the title of the third one was. I've mm-hmm. seen that one. Mm-hmm. And I've seen Prometheus. Those are the Alien franchise films that I have seen. If memory serves, the third one is where she's on a prison planet. And uh, it, it's a, a a planet full of very rapey in- inmates. She gets her she gets a buzz cut, which makes her look really badass and, and <laughs> even tougher than the Ripley that we knew before. There's some pretty cool kind of I would say you know one woman versus you know a planet of you know insane men who haven't had sex in however many years and and hate <laughs> oh her God. guts. Yeah, there's there's some pretty cool moments for her in that film, but it wasn't it generally wasn't well well received. I don't think a lot of people kind of go back and rewatch it very much. I don't. I saw it for the first time because I love Ripley, but um, I remember after watching it going, that wasn't as good as the first two, and I don't think I've rewatched it. Right, and the second one, so. well, the first one was Ridley Scott was directed by Ridley Scott. The first, the second one was directed by James Cameron. And James Cameron has this really interesting habit of being amazingly good at creating sequels that are as good as the first film done by someone else, and in some cases, or by some opinions, better. And so a lot of people, I think, feel that Aliens is at least as good, if not better, than the original to some extent, maybe that's why, because yeah, I was surprised. I remember like looking at that. I, I got really excited about the screening because um, I haven't seen Alien. I don't think I've ever seen Alien on the big screen. And so it was like a first for huh. me. And so I was really excited about that, but I was expecting it to be Alien. And instead it was Aliens, the, the sequel. If I had to say which film was my favorite, I'm going to have to go with the original. As much as I love the sequel, I have to go with the original Mainly, I agree with you there. Well, yeah, well, number one, you know, Ridley Scott, ha- you know, again, he's the guy who gave us Blade Runner. And what I loved about the original Alien is that there was this grit. There was this kind of dirt to the world of the, these, this future world that we're looking at. So it felt very real. It felt very uh, it felt like a lived-in universe. It didn't feel like something that had just been manufactured and maybe mm-hmm. someone just took a blowtorch and kind of added scorch marks here and there, kind of, you know, to give it just that mm. right touch. No, this felt, you know, Ridley Scott, at least historically, his invented worlds feel very lived in. There's grit, there's dirt. And for my money, you know, the first one, just I, I keep replaying just the first scene in my mind, just as, as the camera pans over kind of like the interior of the ship. It looks so real. Mm-hmm. It looks like we're really there. And the other thing that I really love about the first one is Yafet Kodo. Yafet Kodo was kind of like this, for me, he was the, this ingredient that made it far more real than it might have been otherwise because essentially this is a group of truckers there's a group of space truckers and if everyone on this spaceship you know is super intelligent you know super you know just like oh well you could have been a scientist but you chose to be no everyone on this ship is a space trucker and so i felt like what he did was added this kind of next level, like what would a space trucker, what would space truckers, like he, like I can't remember the Hmm. name of the other actor, but he had like kind of a sidekick on the ship. Him and his sidekick kind of really gave off this kind of, okay, yeah, no, this this is definitely what a space trucker would be like in the future. Um, They're worried about their shares. You know, I don't care about life on another planet. You know, am I getting paid? Is this overtime? (laughs) Like all this stuff. Well, no, that's, that's a really great point because what it does is it adds the fact that space travel in their universe is not extraordinary. It's very ordinary. It's right. Exactly. It's to the point where it's like, Hey, I'm here for a paycheck. I don't, I don't, this lofty stuff is not what I'm here for. And that just makes it feel like the future. Yeah. And at one point I can't remember what the captain says, but there's something about their uh, journey that may add extra credits to their, you know, their end haul and it's hilarious. <laughs> like suddenly, you know, Yafit Kodo and the other guys, it's like, oh, oh, well, in that case, you know, let's do it. You know, whatever you say, you know, let's go. Cap, <laughs> you know, 
that would be my favorite one. But the second one, it really, it, it's a close second. Cause I got to tell you, uh, Bill Paxton, is it Paxton or Paxton? Paxton I think I Paxton, remember. his coward role <laughs> is just, I mean, best coward ever. Can we say, you know, but you know, just, he's, up uh, there. he's definitely I, up there. I want to talk about what happened. In it. We're actually going to play some audio. Sigourney Weaver introduced the film aliens at the event and after the film, she actually sat down for questions. It's like it elevated science fiction to, uh, you know, high culture there, uh, right in the middle of Midtown Manhattan for one day. So with that, let's go ahead and transition and listen to Ellen Ripley, a.k.a. in real life Sigourney Weaver, introducing the film Aliens on Alien Day and then afterward holding a brief question and answer session for the audience in attendance. You watched it with us. Did. It's been a while since you'd seen it? Well, quite a long time, actually. Um, It's so much fun to see it in a a proper theater um, instead of on a TV screen. So... Real stuntmen hanging around, 
and I had dummies hanging around. I had to make sure that I flamed the dummies. <laughs> shot the shot with blanks, the, the stunt guys. And then used the bazooka or whatever it is. And uh, it was very cathartic for someone who would, had been working for gun control. <laughs> Jim was aware of all of the ramifications of that. I, I guess I was so grateful to have a role where I could kind of get the job done without being in some skippy little costume. <laughs> it, was, it felt very real to me. It felt like I had to, as Ripley, become this warrior, which she was not, even if she had a lot of mental strength. She had to learn as she went, just as all of us would have to in that situation. And to me, um, it is a great woman character, but I also feel there's, by the end, there's a lot of every man in the character um, that we can all relate to and that we're all, all rooting for. Uh, and I think that's just, you know, Jim's brilliance in, in writing such a sort of seminal character. You know, I, I think the most important thing in these big action scenes is just to be very present. All your senses are very um, alive. You know, sight and sound and taste and smell, everything is because you're, you're like this. And um, the thing I remember about these big scenes is there's so many of us involved. You know, there's such a huge crew. You know, there are puppeteers inside the Queen, there's a guy behind me in the power loader. Um, we had to kind of walk together. And, uh, so much work that goes into every single shot. Um, so it's very exciting for me to watch it with all of you because you clearly appreciate it all. <laughs> doing a role like this because again you have to be so moment to moment there's can't take anything for granted always have to be in the now and um, and I think that's just such a good training for, for an actor. Then you have the Wayland Utani Corporation who's one of the great evil Wayland of science fiction. Well I think that's true and unfortunately I think we have more corporations like Wayland Utani than we used to. You know, Emphasis on profit and um, these these speeches that come out of you know Paul Reiser's mouth. You could read them in the paper tomorrow. Yes. You know you don't understand what we're doing here is really important. You know, we need this. You know this is this is valuable. You know all this doesn't matter about human lives. I mean I feel if anything our society is going more toward toward these big mega corporations and um, it really. It really resonates today, you know, I think even more than it used to. You know, I, I love working with each of these directors. Um, they're all so brilliant and unique in their own way, and, and it's, it's really nice when you work with the same director again, because you kind of have a, a shorthand, you know, you, you kind of have been in the trenches together before, and you know it's going to work out, you have to, each, each one of these directors is so unique and you, you know, they have a vision uh, uh, that's just very special. I think especially you can see it when when a director also writes uh, the piece, I think it, it really becomes, um, to me, for them, such a personal thing. No, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, working with Jim, he's so... Um, he loves women, he loves women as they are, you know, the, the whole gorgeous, natural woman, and, um, and uh, he has such a great record of, you know, creating these amazing parts, and, um, and I'm so happy to work with a director, all these directors, none of them would ever say, well, I think, you know, maybe if you, you know, that would be more attractive if you did it this way or something. No one, you know, has ever said that to me, and I, I don't think I'd take it well. Um, <laughs> I love the honesty of, of just of just her and um, and.
and what she has to do. Uh, I feel very blessed that I was working with a director who um, wanted that, you know. Um, and I remember I said that to my husband who's here tonight. When you're going down the elevator, I remember um, we talked about that, that moment where she has to, you know, put the guns together and, and, and kind of transform into this, into this warrior. Um, and it was a, such a great moment. Uh, and I don't think I anticipated what a powerful transition that was in the movie. Because I'm basically just taking the elevator down. <laughs> but at the time, even in those shots, I felt that something was happening to Ripley, that she was kind of really arming herself inside as well as outside. You know, you just feel part of such an incredible crew. You know that if one of the reasons people love to work with Jim Cameron, even though he's very exacting, is that you have to bring your best game. Uh, he won't accept anything less, certainly not from himself or from anyone, really. Um, but it's also tremendously exciting and inspiring. Um, we, we actually had a kind of difficult time in England uh, because Ridley Scott had directed the first one, the crew, because Terminator had not come out in England, I don't think. It had come out in America. So the crew was sort of like, what the fuck is this guy? <laughs> this Canadian guy doing walking in the footsteps of Ridley Scott. And, and Jim Cameron kept trying to set up screenings for um, for them to watch Terminator so they could see what he was doing. Maybe Piranha 2 too, I don't know. <laughs> and they never went. And it took them two or three weeks before they realized how lucky they were to be working with this guy. But he had to fight. He had to fight to to get them to sort of make that, um, to accept him, I think. You know, he had, he had an AD, we kept calling him governor. And, uh, and he'd say, uh, please don't call me governor. And the guy would say, all right, governor. And they pissed him off. Um, so we had him, and Gail Ann Hurt was right there. They just got married, too. So they, they were awesome together, and Gail especially, because it was, a, it was a tense shoot. There was a lot to get done, um, and it was big and dangerous, and you know, everyone needed to be really frosty. Um, but, but, but Gail really, I remember one meeting where she just took over, and she was just so cool and calm, very quickly like, just, you know, doing what a producer, a good producer does, which is just sort of, you know, very diplomatically making it all, everyone go in the same direction. You know, I, I like, I like science fiction more and more, because to me it's like one of the few spaces in the business where you can actually tell a ri really original story. Um, and I don't think it gets any respect. In business, yet. you know, I I feel like critics don't know how to review these movies. They don't understand all the thinking behind them. They don't appreciate what Jim Cameron said. That this is an exploration of what it is to be human. This is an exploration of what happens when you don't take care of climate change and all these other things. This is an expression of the future as it may be. And, um, and I think it's a really exciting um, uh, genre. And um, I, I, science fiction is kind of a strange term for it. It's so old-fashioned. Um, I don't know you guys should come up with another one. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's sci-fi, and I, I, I become more and more interested in it just as an earthling because I feel like we're we're beginning to think of ourselves as a planet and we are actually probing, you know, Alpha Centauri and all this stuff. So space is becoming more and more of a, a place where we could actually go and live and, um, and I hope we don't have to do that because we screw up our own planet. But anyway, to me sci-fi becomes more and more immediate the, the longer I live. And so, as you can clearly hear, 
Sigourney Weaver is very happy and comfortable in the role of science fiction icon, heroine, hero, uh, badass. And, um, you know, she has some humor about it. And I was so happy to be there in the presence of one of the most badass science fiction characters, actors in history at this point. So I guess what I want to get to now is discussing kind of the intersections of what that film did mm-hmm. with the realities of what we're dealing with now, in, you know, in, in reality. Just, uh, well, first of all, first contact. So when we, in many films, when we envision first contact, for some reason, many people think that first contact will involve some sort of humanoid life form. And and I guess best case scenario for a lot of people is, well, it'll be a humanoid life form, but maybe they'll have three eyes and maybe their skin will be purple or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything that we know about life here on Earth in terms of how life develops in extremely different environments uh, says that if we do ever have first contact with another life form from another planet, it's actually far more likely that they look and and have a physiology that is entirely different from ours. And so although the aliens are somewhat uh, humanoid in terms of, you know, two legs, two arms and that kind of thing, they look kind of insectoid and, and, and mm-hmm. lizardly, lizard-like. Right. And so that's one of the things I love about the alien franchise. It kind of sends this message of no first contact may look, you know, if there are beings, you know, on first contact, they may look like something that is out of a nightmare. I'll put it like this. This is a scenario I always love to bring to friends when we're talking about this kind of stuff, which is, you know, when, let's just say in a scenario where aliens arrived at Earth, they arrive at our planetary doorstep and they Mm -hmm. transmit video somehow down to us and the video screen flickers on and the first face you see is the gaping uh, chit- chitinous maw of a spider oh of yeah well, of a of a tarantula with like oh. what the eight eyes or however many eyes they have, and they're speaking oh, no. to you in some gravelly. Vo- you know, people would lose their minds. We're gonna have intergalactic war if that happens. That's no. Yeah, there would be terrified screams. You know, whereas you know, if if that same scenario played out, and let's say it was the classic pink with giant black eyes and kind of like a light bulb uh, shaped head, there'd be some mild freak outs, but I think people would get over it pretty quickly. But uh, if a talking spider showed up on your screen saying, Hey, hi guys, we've just arrived. (laughs) Can you imagine if it was a huge giant hairy talking spider, but it was like the friendliest alien ever. And it's like, hi guys. Well, no, that's actually that that's the scenario. I'm sorry. I should have added that. That's actually what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, it, you know, the, the, this giant talking spider arrives, is completely friendly. Hey, we want to hang out and help. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think humans, just, I don't care what the hell you're saying. Whatever these things that are, you know, these words that are coming out of your mouth, I'm pretty sure we're mistranslating them and you mean you want to eat us. I'm, you know, I, you know so just the uh, appearance. I think we're still underdeveloped or undeveloped or unevolved enough to where the visuals at this point would be enough to send us into a panic spiral. I mean, like two rows of beady, two rows of four jewel-like eyes with pincers and a hairy, hairy legs. Oh, God. Hey, hey guys. Hi. And, you know, there's like some little clicking sound every time they get some words out. I think we'd be in full freakout mode. So to, to bring that back around to Alien... You know, although clearly in the film, the alien is out to kill every and anything it can, um, just the very sight of the thing. I mean, well, let's be clear. The Alien franchise is ranked as science fiction horror. Okay, Mm -hmm. so let's be clear about that. So, yes, so it is meant to scare the hell out of you. But it's just interesting because if we saw something like Alien or Giant Spider on first contact, I don't, you know, it's my belief that we wouldn't wait to hear what its intentions are. We would immediately freak out and send whatever nukes we have. What, what is it? What's the phrase they use in uh, aliens? Uh, nuke it out of space. Yeah. Moving on from the first contact notion of aliens and kind of what it means, you know, to the film franchise is the idea. And this is, I think, 
part, possibly the most brilliant part, or one of the most brilliant parts of the Alien franchise, which is the Wayland yutani Corporation, which is kind of this, I guess, global corporation that is a military contractor, is a, some sort of mining contractor, a terraforming company. And what what's interesting is that the this company actually has real parallels uh, in our, in our world, um, you have companies like Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin, and now more recently SpaceX. I mean, SpaceX is talking about now traveling, as we said early in the show, it's, it's talking about, uh, traveling and colonizing Mars. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is some, that's some Wayland yutani stuff. And so the hopefully reason, less corrupt, but yeah, well, that's the thing. So the, the reason why the Wayland yutani uh, kind of, you know, position in in the franchise is interesting is that the assumption in the film is that, you know, there would be a priority placed. Well, let's be clear for people who maybe haven't seen the alien movies in a while, essentially what comes out after the first installment, uh, you know, from the second installment on into all the others, in, including the prequel, by the way, um, is that the, the prequel being Prometheus, is that the corporation is far more interested in uh, mm-hmm. resources, and if there is alien life forms, uh, you know, somehow acquiring this you know new form of life and, and trying to study it, you know, to somehow profit off of it, you know, back in you know the human populated parts of the universe. And so, when you look at companies like Lockheed Martin, Boeing. And I guess SpaceX, I mean, they're not really in that category yet. I mean, they're spacefaring now. But, I mean, I, I think the ones that we really think about are the Boeings and Lockheed Martins because they're military contractors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of these companies, it does seem like, you know, profit margin uh, trumps morality. We are now three months into the year of our Lord, 2023. At this moment in our civilization, we can create cybernetic individuals who in just a few short years will be completely indistinguishable from us. Which leads to an obvious conclusion. We are the gods now. For those of you who know me, you will be aware by now that my ambition is unlimited. You know that I will settle for nothing short of greatness, or I will die trying. For those of you who do not yet know me, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Peter Wayland. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to change the world. 